Before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to pay tribute to KLM's history with the 747, as the last revenue flight of a KLM 747 occurred this past Sunday, March 29, 2020, from Mexico City to Amsterdam. Their lifespan was suddenly cut short, as they were retired from KLM's fleet early due to rapidly reduced passenger demand caused by the worldwide coronavirus epidemic. This was very fitting and coincidental timing with the story that we are telling, This episode is devoted to the many decades of service that the 747 provided to KLM and to the many passengers and crews that got to fly with the Queen of the Skies during its tenure with KLM. Two Boeing 747 aircraft collide on a runway in the Canary Islands. In this part, find out what caused these two planes to collide, creating the worst aviation accident in history. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And I'm Jen. Still. We have We have her as a guest again today. Hey. To finish um, us out. Unfortunately, for everyone's <laughs> <years>. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to hear Jen rap just a bit, oh God. it'll be posted on our Patreon for all patrons. That just happens also, to be what we were doing right before this. Shout out to the person who's our new patron on Patreon. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're trying to get stuff up for you. We're real sorry. Thanks, Mike. Of course, this is recorded two weeks previously. Yeah, so by, everything by the time this comes up. out, hopefully we'll be we'll be totally caught, caught up. up. Yeah, that's we, a lot of faith in us. We just wanted to shout out Mike because he we don't know Mike personally, and uh, he's a patron. So <laughs> thank right. you. Oh yeah, so back on the thing we were talking about last week. Oh yeah, that yeah, thing. That thing. <laughs> Remind all of us what that thing was. I'm going to remind you what that thing was. That thing was the worst aviation disaster in history. Ooh. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's oh, right. God, help us. I'm sorry. Okay. So this was in Tenerife on the Canary Islands off the west coast of Africa. The Canary Islands belong to Spain. This was on March 27th of 1977. There had been a terrorist attack at the Las Palmas airport, and all the flights were diverted to Tenerife instead, a nearby island in the Canary Islands. In those two, it were included a Pan Am flight, Clipper 1736, and KLM, a 4805, flight 4805. Both 747s landed and were parked next to each other on the very full ramp while they were dealing with the terrorist situation at the other airport. Both 747s had let their passengers roam about while they were on the ground. But uh, when they found out that the other airport was reopening, they were anxious to get back on the road to the other airport. They were both charter flights. One was for vacation passengers from Holland, and the other one was for cruise passengers from L.A. and New York. So both 747s were gearing up to leave, but the KLM decided to refuel, taking on 55 tons of fuel, holding back the Pan Am as they couldn't get by. When the KLM finally did finish refueling, they were instructed to taxi back down the runway by air traffic control. They did so, but weather began closing in. The pilots were getting really anxious in the KLM cockpit. Uh, Pan Am was then told to follow them, backtracking down the runway as the one taxiway was not available. So both flights found themselves backtracking down the runway in the fog. They couldn't see one another. The KLM was told to make a 180 at the end of the runway to line up for takeoff and then wait for clearance. 
The Pan Am was told to taxi down the runway and exit third one two three to the left intersection to the left, of which there was much confusion. At no point in time could either 747 see each other. ATC clearance was finally given to the KLM, and the Pan Am was just trying to exit at Charlie 4, which they weren't even sure was the right taxiway, and that's when everything went really, really poorly. That pretty much gets us to now. Yeah. Let's just a quick recap. I'm still reeling. (laughs) I've been thinking about it all week. Yep. Okay, well, we'll we'll talk a little bit about what happened then. Yeah. Um, And because then it gets into my portion, the wreckage. So... Basically what happened was the KLM started taking off without having actual clearance to take off. They were told the clearance, which meant what to do after they take off. The air traffic control clearance. Yes. Yes. But they did not have takeoff clearance. They're, they're very different. And they started down the runway, which Pan Am was like, we are not off the runway yet. Uh, we, are, we are not off the runway and ATC was like, okay, report when runway is clear. And they're like, okay, we'll report when we're clear. And they looked out the side window of the cockpit and they were like, many expletives, that guy's coming. Yeah. So they, they're like, this guy's coming. And the first officer basically says, get off, get off, get off, get off, get off. And they see the rotating beacon underneath the KLM. KLM's trying to take off. I don't know if you remember from last week, but he had an entire full tank of fuel. Yep. Which means they couldn't take off that soon. They were too heavy. So eventually what ends up happening, one plane's going this way and they're tilted up. The other plane's going this way and they're trying to get off the runway and they can't get off fast enough. And basically what happens is they collide and the top of the Pan Am comes completely off. And the KLM gets completely destroyed, and 583 people. 83 people lose their lives. 583 of this. people. Everyone on the KLM and a good portion of the people on the Pan Am flight. And and just to remind myself, there was one crew that did not get back on. It wasn't a crew. It was a, a passenger. A passenger. It was a tour guide that had oh, been okay. doing some training back in Holland. And was returning, and she stayed behind to be with her boyfriend, uh, unbeknownst to the airline, and she's the sole survivor from the KLM flight. The, the Pan Am flight had 61 survivors. Yep. Wow. Of which, actually, the entire flight crew were survivors. Well, in the cockpit. Yeah, the entire flight crew in the cockpit. The, yeah. The flight engineer, the first officer, and the captain, all three survived on the Pan Am flight. Not, no one, not all of the flight attendants survived. Yeah. But several of them did, though. Has there, um, I'm, I'm sure you touch on this at some point, but do they have special, like, therapy for those people? I mean, there's survival skills. There is disaster therapy and therapists that exist. I don't know if they... They had that at the time, though. Yeah, but I, now... I know that First Officer Braggs on the Pan Am flight did continue flying for the rest of his career. Okay. He was interviewed for both of the... Documentaries we use as sources? Yes, and they're both on the website. One of them is the flight, the Air Disasters flight. The Air Disasters episode's on there, and then uh, Crash of the Century, the documentary, is also on there. So, yep. Which is available on Amazon Prime. Wow. So, we are not sponsored by them. 
No, we are not. Not no. sponsored. I'm just giving you where you can watch it. Because that particular documentary had a lot of survival survivor testimonies. So we're not really going too in-depth about them. So you can do that on your own time. The link is on the website to get to the Amazon, by the way. I did put it on there. To the Amazon. To the Amazon. All right. So we're going to get into wreckage, which is, like I said, my portion. Um, Morbidly my favorite part. <laughs> That's morbidly you know. a lot of people's favorite part, it yeah. turns yeah. out. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to admit it. Hands up. For all the people out there who like that part. You can't see it, but I'm raising my hand. (laughs) I can see it. So the KLM 747 impacted the Pan Am 747 at an angle, tearing off the top of the Pan Am 47 to a point where the co-pilot could look all the way down to the tail from where he was in the cockpit. This caused the KLM 47 to skid further down the runway. It is possible also that the Pan Am plane could have kept moving after impact because the engines, I believe, were still running. After the impact had happened, the Pan Am wreckage was 1,383 meters or about 4,537 feet from the start of the runway. So where KLM had to do the 180 yep. from that point to where they were, where they where it ended up happening. Which basically means in order to, they expect a 747 that's fully loaded to take off in under 5,000 feet. That's pretty unrealistic. And then the KLM plane was 450 meters, or about 1,476 feet, from where the Pan Am plane was. So some of the Pan Am plane was found by the KLM, so it was like by the wreckage of the KLM plane, which had proved that there had been a collision, and that it did take part of the plane with it. Oh yeah. The KLM was completely off the ground when they hit the Pan Am plane, so they did have takeoff, but it they were still so close to the ground. Uh, if you ever watch any of the reenactments, they had a tail strike, and they drug the tail down the runway because they were trying to take off. There's that word again. Tail Drug. Strike. Drug. Dragged. Dragged. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> hey, it's fine. We also found English out is hard. that Miranda doesn't know how to say foliage. Give me a break, okay? <laughs> I have how a learning disability. I know how to say it now. She said foliage. Foliage. Hey, I, I pronounce the word granite, granite for years because that's the <laughs> way you, you pronounce it if it's spelled, like sounded the way it's spelled. Anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Off track, it's Christy. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, Christy. Hey, is there anybody out there that still says beautiful when they're spelling it? Do they just go B-E-A-utiful? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I because do I the swear same thing that with Wednesday. Like, Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday. And yeah. February. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. There's our lightheartedness. So because the KLM flight did take off, they flew about 150 more meters down the runway, and then they impacted the ground and skidded the 300 more meters to where they stopped. So I'm going to show a picture a diagram if you will it's on our website but we're showing it to jen so if you see this is a white graph up here oh the pan am wreckage is on the right over here most of the plane and then various of plane parts everywhere that they found it and then the klm that's how far they were oh wow down the runway from after impacting them so so it kind of drug a lot of the debris with it yes it did drag dragged drug (laughs) It drug so far. Yes, it did. Right, Miranda? Drugged. 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 The plane was drugged. (laughs) 
Oh, no. <laughs> oh, so gosh. here's a photo of Ooh, um, I like that photo. the actual, what it looked like. So up there is the Pan Am. Closer to us is the KLM flight. So we're on the west side facing east. Yes. I, I like that. This is a really good photo to, to visualize it. Here's another one. Because imagine if there was the fog at the density they claim there was. Yes. Yep. And like we couldn't see it. And then here's one of just the, I believe this is the Pan Am. Pan Am, yeah. And this one is the KLM. Wow. So. And these are other, there's probably like, helicopters taking these photos. Yeah. Yes. And there's like nothing left it's of like them. It's like the day after this happened, And you can see the there's no way that that plane could ever make that turn because that's exactly the shape yeah. of that third from the left. So let me it. show you the this. So the one that's closest to the KLM, that's Charlie 3. Yeah. The one that's closest to the Pan Am, that was Charlie 4. That's where they were trying to get off the runway. And that's a much higher chance of making that turn as a 747 yeah and you just see get how, into cl- it. how close they were to the end of the runway yeah. anyway stop foreshadowing my part hey listen i i'm just showing pictures <laughs> she's getting, okay she's getting mad <laughs> listen <laughs> it's okay i teased her about foliage okay so both planes were destroyed by the collision but the klm plane was immediately destroyed because after it had skidded the 300 meters, it immediately caught fire. And it said in the report, it said it violently caught fire. Like I said, both planes were destroyed. The Pan Am stopped where it was for the most part when it was trying to get off the runway. Uh, it was at a basically a 45 degree angle from the center line of the runway. And it had a fire that slowly disintegrated the plane. So people who were on board were trying to get off because the fire did not immediately start uh inside the cabin there were no emergency slides that deployed from the pan am plane so everyone who was trying to exit had to jump the 40 feet to the concrete what yeah so normally when you exit a plane in an emergency there are slides that help you get from how high the plane is to the ground that didn't happen so people had to jump off the wing they had to jump off the actual lower deck of the of the Pan Am because the top deck was completely gone. A lot of that didn't happen because there weren't really doors or slides left no. to use. And a lot of so the if you look in the pictures, the left wing, which I showed you earlier, um, was almost completely untouched and they said that forty five to fifty passengers just chilled on the wing. Yep. There was an overwing exit that was opened by a flight attendant. She later died from an engine disintegrating on her. Passengers had to jump out of the aircraft or off the wing, like I said, to get away from the flames of the fire. The captain jumped through first class, went through the floor into the cargo cargo area, and he ended up getting really badly burned from um, bursts of oxygen and stuff that caused the fire to get really bad in the cargo area. I didn't think about that, how like the airflow would pull... And push, like, the fire into different spots. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and they said there were some oxygen bottles in the, the cargo hold that ended up bursting, and those, yeah, really bad for flames. Um, and the co-pilot just jumped out of the cockpit 40 feet to the concrete. And he said in the Air Disasters episode, he didn't even think twice about it. He just jumped. And it didn't say if he got hurt at all. I'm assuming he broke his legs. Uh, he that's... must have something. Unless he rolled, even then he had to have broken or bruised something because that's a long way down. Did the 747 have the escape rope? The 747 does have escape rope, but I'm not sure he would have been able to use it because I'm pretty sure the top of their cockpit was gone. And where you leave the cockpit of the 747 is out the hatch on the roof. 
I thought it was through the window. That's where he left. Actually, it was just a hole in the side of the cockpit. Yeah. Oh, a window. Well, yeah. There's a case. there's normally a hatch on top of the seven four seven. It's above above the windows above the cockpit. There's a hatch and there's a little ladder that climb get out. Yeah. Fun stuff. So as we said, about sixty one not about sixty one passengers survived on the Pan Am. No one survived on the KLM flight. There was also substantial damage to the runway by the impact and the fires, so they had to resurface most of this runway after this happened. They were able to find both FDRs and CVRs from both flights, and they used them both to help find out what happened. And then they set up a morgue in an empty hangar to put all the bodies in, and it was full. It got full of dead bodies, which is horrible. In the Crash of the Century documentary, they have footage just of all the coffins. And it's really... Unnerving. Yeah. Upsetting. That That is unnerving. We can show it to you later. It, it reminds me of the... I don't remember what episode in your podcast, but it reminds me of, like, if they just stacked all those hyperbaric chambers up and <laughs> just saw all those people using them. Oh, from the gangrene. Yeah. Episode three, four, three. 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 Ugh. So, 75% of the survivors were taken to the hospital via taxi. Because they were on Tenerife, and it's an island, and so they didn't have a lot of ambulances to take people to the hospital. So they ended up having to go by taxi to get medical help. So what you don't see on this diagram is at the end of this runway on the far left, there is a fire station that eventually was told by ATC. If you remember, ATC didn't find out right away that there was a crash. They had to figure out from a plane that was circling overhead that there was a fireball basically on the runway. So they called the emergency personnel, and the emergency personnel were right at the end of the runway to the left. So they found the KLM flight, and they were trying to put out the fire. They realized no one was survived. They didn't find the Pan Am plane until 20 minutes later. They had no clue it even because was it, there. Because the fog was so thick, they still didn't know it was there. Plus they smoke at that point. So they assumed one plane crashed yeah. on its own. Yeah. Yep. They didn't know that there were two. So that was also a big issue regarding trying to fight the fires and stuff because the fire crews didn't get it there till probably around 40 minutes after this happened. So that is my portion of this. So here's the crazy thing when it comes to totals of death on this. And it's, it's you know, of course, this is a huge number to be talking about. Huge. Especially in aviation. But 583 people. And nobody on the KLM survived, but actually they had fewer deaths than the Pan Am. They had fewer people on board. They did. There was 248 people on the, the KLM that died. That was all 248 on board. However, the Pan Am... Total fatalities was 335 of and, the 396 total. Yeah, because 61 people survived. Yep. Of which all 61 were injured. Substantially. While jumping down from a 747 is no walk in the park. It turns out. And while it's on fire and falling out from underneath your feet. It's a bad day. So, the investigation. Per international laws, Spain, the Netherlands, and the U.S. all had a right to participate in the investigation. However, it was a political nightmare. At the time, Spain's aviation safety was controlled by the Spanish military, whose general elected to kick everyone out initially. In one documentary, it said, he said, I represent the king, leave, or something like that. I didn't get the exact quote, but he specifically said, I represent the king. Okay. But he bonded with one of the NTSB investigators when he heard his Cuban accent. 
and they realized they were both born in Cuba, so he let them in. One bit of good news that Miranda did mention is that all four black boxes were found. The KLM's flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder were both found in the tail and were burned but usable. The Pan Am's flight data recorder was in the tail and the CVR was in the cabin. What? It had fallen in. It had fallen into the cabin? Well, yeah, the tail was gone. Oh. And then it burned Yikes. and things just fell into the cabin, so. Yikes. But specifically, they mentioned that the FDR was in excellent condition. The outer casing was slightly damaged, but it hadn't burned at all. That is pretty crazy in that reality. That is a little weird, yeah. Although, is that part of the, I guess I should know this, because I'm the one who did the wreckage. Was that part of the thing that got picked up and dragged by the KLM flight? I'm looking at the picture, and I don't see any pan and tail anywhere. It just says the tail fin. Yeah, well, maybe because it was away from the rest of the burning plane that it just didn't. Yeah. Oh, the nose separated. That's nice. Yeah, the nose really separated. Yeah. Sorry, we're just looking at pictures. Don't mind us. Anyway... So, Pan Am CVR was sent to Washington, D.C. to be processed by the NTSB, as is customary. But the KLM CVR was sent to Seattle to be processed because uh, it was made by a different manufacturer. So, Boeing had to process it, I'm assuming. That's weird. They didn't say Boeing, but Seattle is a pretty safe jump to Boeing. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They said they had taken it to the manufacturer. Whatever. Whoever that may be in Seattle. These four recorders were synced up with the air traffic control recording and were ultimately what was needed to determine the cause of this incident. Investigators first decided to look at this event from an air traffic control point of view. Could a miscommunication from the Spanish-speaking controller have caused this accident? They reviewed the recordings and found that though it took some time to figure out between Pan Am and the controllers, if you listened to the last episode, they were able to figure out where they were supposed to get off the runway. It took a little bit of time, but they eventually figured it out. It was supposed to be at the third exit, at Charlie 3. So why didn't they exit there? As we discussed briefly last week and a little bit today. All you need to do is look at the pictures. It's like so ridiculously hard for any plane to make that turn, much less of 747. Yeah, so it was real tight. This maneuver, if they had tried to pull it off, would have required two 148-degree turns. One to get off the runway and to the left, and then another right turn, the same angle, to get onto the taxiway. No. In the fog. In the fog. No, no. It, no. With no center light. Yeah, the center light was out too, so they couldn't even see the center line. Yep, so that was a no. Rather than do that, the crew decided to take Charlie 4, which would have only been two 45-degree turns. This still didn't explain, though, why the KLM flight took off. Pan Am choosing a different taxiway did not cause this I- did not cause this accident. So let's look at KLM for a second. Captain Jakob Van Zanten was, as we discussed, very worried about going over duty hours, the new yep. ones that KLM had implemented. He also seemed like a gigantic a-hole. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. Without being super crude about it. So if they didn't have the time to make it back to Amsterdam, it would have cost the airline around $40,000 in hotel fees for the passengers that were supposed to board in Las Palmas. If they didn't have the time but opted to go anyway, they would have all lost their licenses and their careers. Do you think that those, uh, those hotels would have cost less than the insurance claims? Yes. Uh, As a matter of fact, we know they bunch do. less, yes. <laughs> we know they did. We'll get into it. At the time that they were refueling, they had two hours outside of flight time before they would have to cancel the flight. They could barely squeeze in everything. 
half hour to taxi to take off, an hour to load everyone in Las Palmas, and half an hour to taxi out. So he was cleared to taxi at, and make a 180 at the end of the runway, all of which was done beautifully. B-E-A-U-tifly. Ha. Ha. Hey. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> After completing takeoff checklist, Captain Van Zetten pushed his throttles forward, and investigators were able to audibly hear this on the CVR. The first officer was like, wait a minute, we don't have ATC clearance. And the captain said, no, I know that. Go ahead. Ask. Yep. Dude, can we talk about how much of an a-hole he is? He's a pretty big a-hole. Gaping. <laughs> it, uh, and normally wow. I wouldn't say this. To be fair, it's probably dramatized in the two. No, I, that was from the CVR. Well, yes, that's from the CVR. But to be fair, it was dramatized. The way it was pictured on both documentaries, I'm like, I would hate working with someone like that. Okay, but I also feel, especially the Smithsonian, who's the one who makes air disasters, they consulted with the NTSB, who actually listened to the CVR. I feel like they wouldn't do it that much injustice. He probably was that rude. Which we will get into. Again, I would hate working with someone like that, so. Absolutely. So the first officer radioed in, uh, the KLM 4805 is now ready for takeoff, and we're waiting for our ATC clearance. The controller replied, KLM 8705. Wrong number. Uh, you are cleared to the Papa Beacon. Climb to and maintain flight level 9 or 0. Right turn after takeoff. Proceed with heading 040 until intercepting the 325 radial from Las Palmas VOR. The first officer acknowledged this. Uh, sir, Roger, sir. We're cleared to the Papa Beacon. Flight level 9 or 0. Right turn out 040 until intercepting the 325. And we're now at takeoff. All the while, the captain was already releasing the brakes and advancing his throttles, saying, let's go, check thrust, before the first officer was even done on the radio. To be clear, what air traffic gave him was not takeoff clearance. It was not departure clearance. It was ATC clearance. Correct. This is what you do after takeoff. Nowhere in this clearance did the controller say that the KLM 747 could take off. By saying, we are now at takeoff, the first officer was saying they were taking off, which was not the proper verbiage to do so. And ATC didn't take it to mean as such, and neither did the Spanish, Dutch, or American investigators when the three groups heard the CVR for the first time. Well, that's telling. Well, and then there's the part, too, with the ATC that are like, hold and wait until I give you takeoff clearance. So ATC responded, okay, but wait, you might ask. Didn't ATC previously say don't take off? Didn't Pan Am say we're still on the runway? Yes. Yes, they did say that. After ATC said okay, and that was recorded on the KLM CVR, a four-second static squeal was heard. Channel cross. Channel cross. For those of you who are not used to using radios in your everyday life, you cannot say things at the same time on the radio. That's why you hear people say in everyday radio use, here's my message, blah, 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 over. This is to let you know that the message is over and someone else can respond. Otherwise, if you have two people talk on the radio at the same time, a third party will just hear a squeal instead of either message. This is exactly what happened in the KLM cockpit. They did not hear ATC say, stand by for takeoff, I will call you. They did not hear Pan Am say, and we are still taxiing down the runway, Clipper 1736. So Captain Van Zetten began his takeoff roll. 
Nine seconds after advancing his throttles, the tower radioed in saying, Papa Alpha 1736, report runway clear. To which First Officer Braggs responded, Okay, we'll report when we're clear. Tower said, thank you. 17 seconds after his takeoff roll, the KLM flight engineer pipes up to the captain regarding that last radio transmission in Dutch, but this is the translation because I don't speak Dutch, and neither do you probably. Is he not clear then? Van Zanten said, what did you say? Is he not clear then? That Pan American. Van Zanten emphatically said, oh, yes. Why? Why? See, that's why they don't do that anymore in the cockpit. No. Just, and we'll get more into what that is yes. later, but. So just to clarify, when they both talked on the radio at the same time, all three parties who were supposed to be listening could not hear. Control the two planes. Correct, but only KLM heard the squeal. Okay, so the other two didn't have that recorded. No, basically when you turn on a radio to transmit, you don't hear anything incoming. Oh, okay. That makes sense. As Nick can vouch, because he's the only one of us who's taken flight lessons, one of the very first lessons you learn in flight school is not to take off prior to receiving clearance to do so. Absolutely. Why would Van Zanten, the star of KLM, the head of flight training at KLM, the freaking director of flight safety, why would he break such a primitive rule? Because, friendo, he hadn't been in a plane for a long time. So there are two reasons. One, as Miranda mentioned, this was his first actual flight in three months. Uh, why? Well, he was the head of flight training at KLM, as I just said. He had spent the last few months training new pilots in a simulator. An artificial environment, you might say, albeit a good one. Fairly accurate. However, simulators at this time were missing one vital element. ATC. Yup. He had spent months at this point getting to dictate his own takeoffs, and so he was in the habit of doing so. Just getting to say, throttles forward, let's go. Check thrust, let's go. Which you can't do until you have takeoff clearance in as, a normal plane. As it turns out. I mean, I'm just going to say this right now. Um, you know, you should probably just understand that that's like the, like the rules. Even if, if you're playing basically a video game for three months you or however think. long. <laughs> like, you would think. You, you would, would think absolutely so. absolutely think so. You would think so. But he clearly did not. Ego gets in the way of a lot. As it turns out. So, the second reason. In this time of aviation, there was a culture of hierarchy in the cockpit. Toxically so, in fact. The captain's word was law. He was God. He was not to be questioned. This made it way less likely for someone his junior, like, say, the flight engineer or the first officer, to challenge him. And this was supported by the first engineer not persisting after the captain said, Oh, yes. And why the first officer didn't say anything about the fact they didn't get takeoff clearance. Let's do a break. Break the break. Break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we just showed Jen the simulation that air disasters did, 
which they were also interviewing First Officer Braggs, and he jumped out and did roll and was uninjured. So we want to just clarify that. Yes, he did not break his legs. He was actually, what from what he said, had minor ear injuries from the roll and the jump. That 40, 45? 45? 45 feet. 45 feet drop. So can after, like, you say all, like, the facts. Can we make our own probable cause? <laughs> so the KLM flight apparently had a, or the Dutch, the people who are from the Netherlands yeah. who yes. did their investigation have a probable cause. Which I would like to dispute. Uh, I'm sure I would like to dispute it, too. If because, it, you know. If it doesn't accuse, what's the guy's name? The, Van Zanten? Van Zanten. Jacob. Then I don't want to hear it. So <laughs> while Nick's looking that up, um, I'm going to tell you what they concluded. They concluded that the disaster was caused by air traffic control who were watching it or listening to a football game at the time, coupled with their strong accent and language barrier. That's not even true. Not in the slightest. I had no, when I did my research for ATC, there was nothing that said they were listening to anything but what was going on on the radios. So on the Crash of the Century documentary, they did admit that they were listening to the Hungary versus Spain football game. But it's also not like they weren't doing their job. Also, he shouldn't have taken off. He did not have clearance. He should not have taken off. They didn't give him takeoff clearance. They're trying to save their butts saying that it's ATC's fault. I'm going to pull it back and I'm also going to say it's it's who's ever fault who didn't call to close the runway when the center lights are out and the fog was that thick. They shouldn't have been. You're right. They shouldn't this, have even been the on the airport. Was it technically sh- illegal at it that point. It should be on the airport if that's the person. Because I'm not sure. Well, about, like who's honestly, that's kind blame. of on everyone. And I think that's why they didn't specifically point it out. Because ATC should have they closed all it. All should have done. Pan that. Am should have said no. We're not taking off. KLM said no. We should have said we're no. We're not taking off because they were below minimums. Well, that and we don't have time. No. So that was on everybody. Uh, yeah, everybody's at fault at that point. And I think they're that's, the ones who. We're okay with being on the runway. ATC decided that it was it, fine. It was fine when they couldn't see anything. So we're speculating in saying this because it wasn't mentioned in the report, but I believe everyone was at fault in that regard. So the moral of the story is don't follow the leader if the leader is wrong. Uh, we'll get into that one. <laughs> right. But yes, you're right. That is true. Wow. And and I've definitely been guilty of like just put my head down and be like, all right, we're going for it, you know, and you got to evaluate. When that, there's people's lives at stake, did. it's not okay. Yeah. People, a lot of people died in this. Every, so many people died. Yep. More well, people in history till this day have not died in an airplane accident. Accident. We use that word, by the way, quite knowingly. There has been a deadlier aviation disaster. No. Yeah. What's the difference? Because I wouldn't know. Accident was not intentional. 9-11 was quite intentional. So a disaster is intentional? Disaster is just anything where people... Died. So an accident is unintentional. Correct. Okay. Well, because if you think about it, if you ever get into a car accident... No one meant for that to Are you intending to hurt the person in the other car? Are they intending to hurt you? Probably not. They just probably... You either weren't paying attention, they weren't paying attention, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et so it's an accident. They didn't mean for it to happen. You didn't mean for it to happen. I guess that's why it's manslaughter if it's a DUI, because although you didn't intend to crash, you got in the car knowing that you could crash. Right. Exactly. There was intent. 9-11 was intentional. 100% intentional. Which is why... And they include the people who died on the ground. Correct. Apart so, from who died on the airplanes. That's why we say Tenerife is the deadliest aviation 
accident. It -hmm. is not the deadliest aviation disaster. That's a good... I wouldn't have caught that detail. But now they know. You ready? We gave Nick some... What you got? Stall time. Yes. So, in the conclusions, there's a handful, but they essentially talk about... uh, They do say that KLM... So, this is the Spanish report, coming from the Spanish report. So, there's... Because there's two reports, there's back and forths. But from the Spanish report, which is a little more in-depth, be it that it is their country, this happened on, uh, they do say they believe it is the the fault of the KLM that he, that the captain took off without clearance, that he did not obey the standby for takeoff from the tower, that the takeoff was not interrupted by the first officer or second officer, the flight engineer, and that when the flight engineer did say, is the Pan Am still in the way, basically, that that was not heated. Also, fun fact, uh, and we talked about this before we started, uh, before Jen even came over today, is they never called out V1, which means they had plenty of time to stop. They probably... They, they probably they, could have stopped. They may or may not have been able to. It's really unproven, but they likely may have saved they could more have aborted, lives. My point is they could have aborted takeoff. They may have saved they more lives. They did not lives. have to keep going down the runway, and they did anyway. They tried taking off, which is why the tail strike happened. They were in the air when they hit the Pan Am flight, but they could have because they had not reached V1. Which is the go-no-go. Right. Once you hit V1, you can't turn back, but they didn't hit V1 yet. So really, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I don't know, I'd have to look up the terrain around the runway, but they might have been able to just pull off to the side because they were going fast enough that the plane would have, I mean, they might have hit the back of Pan Am, but... I mean, we. the thing is, is, we'll, we'll never know. This is of course. We'll never know. No one's ever tested this in a simulator right. before. So um, anyone who has access to a simulator who wants to do that, right? you can do that. But of course, like I said, this is speculation because back then they didn't have simulators that could do this and they haven't really done anything about that since. So, but we just wanted to bring up the point that they were not at V1. V1 was not called out on the yeah. cockpit voice recorder. So. Yeah. Did they have ground radar at that point? They did no. not. So if you remember from last week, I talked about how ATC yeah. didn't have great ra- okay. ground radar. So, That's why they couldn't see either of the planes. Right. Even even without fog, they just didn't have it. Right. So right. I'll get deeper into that in a minute. Okay. So in their conclusions, they, they continue on saying that they believe there was a lot of tension on the KLM pilots, of course, because of the crew time and their duty time. And that timing was causing the captain to put a lot of pressure on his crew and himself in getting that airplane off the ground as soon as possible before they close the airport for weather again, before they run out of time, before he loses his license. All these things are running through his head. They, of course, say that the weather was an issue at the airport. It was a huge issue because no one could see anything. Weather was well below minimums for the airport and the condition that it was in. Also, I did read one thing earlier that kind of surprised me. So we talk on this podcast a lot about how you know, 10 seconds doesn't seem like a lot of time, but when you're in an emergency, it seems like a lot of time because adrenaline's rushing through your system. Right. Investigators did determine that Pan Am saw KLM 9.5 seconds before collision. So they did, I mean, they tried their best because they were like, uh, there's a plane. That's also mm-hmm. a long time to know that. That is a pretty gonna long time. They're going to hit you. You're going to yeah. die, probably. That feels like forever. That's enough time to flashback. Pretty much. Yes. Yep. Sorry, sidetrack. Backtrack? I mean, that's just... Keep keep in mind, like, the (laughs) metal... backtrack? (laughs) Hey, hey, new t-shirt. Hey. (laughs) Hashtag tail drag? Tail strike? Tail strike. Tail strike? Tail drug? 
Tell drug. Oh my god, no. Leave me yeah, alone. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Leave tell me drug. alone. They're Everybody. bullying me. Everybody. <laughs> I have a learning disability. They're bullying me. Miranda has dysgraphia. I, so explain that because I might have it. It's a form of dyslexia that when I'm writing things or when I'm reading things, my brain thinks it's spelled one way, but it's actually spelled another way. I do that all the time. <laughs> so, like, fo- foilage... <laughs> Foilage. My brain wants to say that it's spelled F O I L, but it's spelled F O L I A. Mine is billiards and billards. I I forget there's an I. Yes. So, and my brain just, if I'm writing, sometimes my brain will combine two words when they're not supposed to be Uh. together. So I always have to rewrite anything I write because if any of you have gotten a message from me, it's been grammatically incorrect. You can blame my dysgraphia. That's what's happening. <laughs> or and just then I don't blame anyone, and just thankfully you got a message from Miranda because she's famous. Hey. Sure. <laughs> but sometimes I reread those messages and I go, uh oh. Like, oh, what was I? Doing? I put the calm in the wrong Come spot. On. We're gonna have grandma for dinner now. I was, post- <laughs> I was posting everything on Patreon today, and I go and copy stuff from Miranda's website posts, and I found one today that said third. Three seven three. Oh, crash, I do that like all the time. Seven thirty seven. Mm-hmm. I just hope you get uh, to eventually look at it and then you fix it for me. It was an <laughs> old one. I'm like, this has been up here for a month. My my I do brain that all the time. Legit, just doesn't. It's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that I, I do fun. that with phone numbers all the time. I have to like say it out loud as I'm okay. typing it in. Sorry, okay, sorry. go ahead. Sorry, okay. that was <laughs> Sorry, editing. No, I'm keeping that in there. <laughs> So anyway, so there's only a couple more of these uh, in the conclusions. So uh, obviously the weather, we said, but they also blamed the, in, they say inadequate language. Well, it would be more like inappropriate language Correct. for, incorrect language for, for term, for terms, like aviation language. It doesn't follow standards. It doesn't have correct verbiage, doesn't have correct language uh, when they're communicating back and forth with air traffic control. The one part that always bothered me is how they always said, well, the third intersection, one, two, three, the third intersection. Well, there's so many reasons that is so confusing. And they proved it all when they were in the CVR. Like, they were saying, oh, well, it could be the third one counting from the first one. It could be or the third one. counting from the second one because they had already the... passed the first one. Right. It could be the third one counting from the second one. It could be the third one so as in Charlie really 3. So they really should have said Charlie 3. Right. Because then it would have been, the correct... okay, I see Charlie 3 on the map. That's the one they the want to The correct verbiage for this would be exit taxiway Charlie 3. Which they never said. They never said. Nobody ever said. Nobody even asked for it. And that really bothers me. It's like that would have been the clarifying point. So, and and then even if they knew that it was Charlie 3 that he was talking about, then they could have said, oh, we're going... There's to, we're, no way that we can get off there. We right, need to but, get off at Charlie 4. Right. Then they could have said, well, Charlie, we're unable to turn at Charlie 3. We'll take Charlie 4. But they didn't even, they didn't even have the opportunity to do that. They really didn't know. There was so much confusion over that. So inadequate language is a really big part of this. But more of what I feel that's referring to is using the word takeoff before authorizing takeoff. That too. we'll get into. And they did change that, by the way. Yes, there's. I'll get into all that. There's a lot of changes that came with this. And one big one that Jen will be excited about. We don't have to press the babies against the floor? No, that too. That's, but... I mean, I don't think there were any babies. Were there any babies the, lap I'm infants sure on this flight? There were children. Uh, there there might were have children, been. but I don't know about lap infants. It didn't say anything I have specific. no clue, but the reality is it wouldn't even matter because they didn't have time to brace. 
Anyway, that's you right. not what we're talking <laughs> I, about. I did Beside not mean to do it. It was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I'm referring Nobody's to. Nobody's pressing babies through the floor. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back to the first episode. Very first one. <laughs> I swear, those of you I'm working, making a shirt. For those of you that. working backwards, you're weird. Yeah. Also, Jen's going to be in charge of our merch in the future. Yeah, yeah. So if you want anything, um, I'm, I'm going to get a, a contact on some sort of social media platform with uh, so people can send me ideas. Yeah. Send right. us stuff and we'll send it to her. Yeah. Okay. All right, continue. Continuing. Um, also, they blamed the unusual traffic congestion and traffic patterns happening at Tenerife. Yes. Because yeah. the... people were parked on the taxiway, so they couldn't go down the taxiway. They had to go down the runway to taxi. Mm. It's almost like they should have right. just closed. Yeah, yeah pretty much. You would think so, but you know. Yep. Hmm. Okay. So, as for recommendations. So, essentially, all of the recommendations in in the Spanish report, there's only three. And they're really short and succinct. But all three of them are about communication. All three of them are about poor communication. Because this was the biggest communication failure. Oh, by far and away. This is the biggest breakdown of communication, hands down. And it's not it's not any one person. It is across the board. Everybody. It is all three locations. Air Traffic Control, Pan Am, and KLM. That's why we broke this up the way we did in the first part, the first episode of this, this two-part debacle. Because... The reality is all three had a complete communication breakdown between themselves, between the the air traffic control communication, the radio communications, in the cockpits. There was so much confusion on all three ends. It didn't help anybody's situation. And all three contributed to this. There's not one in particular. However, the Dutch and the Spanish, of course, like to say that it was one or the other that, that were at ultimately fault? at fault. The Spanish said, of course, it was the, the KLM crew that took off without clearance, which is, of course, the biggest mistake there. But that is not solely the reason this happened. They blame the, the Dutch blamed the Spanish because of the air traffic controls, poor language and poor verbiage and poor instructions. Having said takeoff in his ATC clearance, those kinds of things, they, they blame him, saying that it was his fault. To be fair, on the ATC side playing devil's advocate for that is he says after takeoff he never says takeoff right completely and i this is why they changed it right because i think the captain just heard takeoff and went all right and we're going and he frankly there's a difference between big difference those two and he wasn't listening i think he heard the word takeoff and he went let's go well that's i don't think he was actually listening for you know, clearance, which is what why is happening, which is why the word takeoff is no longer used until you are given departure clearance. Right. So yeah. this is a good lead into what changed after this happened. Sagu. And <laughs> completely honest, this this episode, <laughs> this uh, this incident was by far and away one of the biggest changing incidents in all of aviation because it led to something called crew resource management. <laughs> this is what Jen was going to love. This this episode, this incident, and everything about this is exactly what led to crew resource management in aviation as Period. a term and as a teaching point. It is now one of the the biggest teaching points in aviation. It is it's a psychology term, and it is by far and away the most important thing you can have in a cockpit, if you ask me, because it is the only way you can keep a sane, stable mind. 
when you're operating an airplane. We have talked about it numerous times since it comes we started up, this podcast. It comes up in almost every episode because almost always it is a factor whenever a pilot error is the cause of an incident. Is yep. crew resource management. Yep. And basically what this did was what the captain said was not law anymore. It can always be checked by the flight engineer and the first and the first officer and then when they eventually got rid of the flight engineer, the first officer. They can always say, "No, that's not right. I'm taking over this aircraft." Done. They are no longer secondary to the captain. They are now on the basically the same playing level. They're just checking. They're like it's like checking checks and balances, right? That's exactly they're what it is. They're checking each yeah. other to make sure that they're making the right decision and they're following procedures. Yeah, it's absolutely a form of aviation checks and balances because in it's the, the co- it's the acknowledgement that everyone in the cockpit is human. You can mis- make mistakes. And yes, that can be a bad thing, but as long as you have someone else in the cockpit, it any Something's avoidable. An incident is avoidable because you have that second person. Well, and it's, a, it's important to know if anybody out there leads anybody or has a leader in their life. Like, you want somebody who's smarter than you as a boss. Like, you need, like, as a pilot, I would want my co-pilot to know more than I would so they could make up for my differences. And just the same, it's like you use that... You know, every person goes through aviation training just a little bit differently. Everybody has their yeah. own experience. Everybody gets their own experience. Everybody's a little different, just the same way it is with everything in life. And because of that, it's like taking all those little experiences and making one whole decision out of two different people's experiences. Two Basically, to three, depending on where you are. That's a well, better decision yes. at that point. Exactly. And so, I mean, crew resource management really comes down to making making sanity in the cockpit out of everybody there and it's it's the ability to say okay i'm the captain technically i am in charge of this entire operation in this flight however it is important for me to receive opinions and decisions and feedback from those that are in the cockpit with me because they are equally having experiences and equally in this situation with me no matter you, what. You do the same thing in almost everything you do if you do a work-based activity at all. Yeah. You always have someone who's checking you, giving you criticism, showing how you can be better. Like I said, especially we do it a lot in teaching where you are constantly looked at by your principal, by other teachers, and learning how you can be better at doing what you're doing. And that's what you're doing when you're in a cockpit full of other people is you can make mistakes. You are human. It happens. It's well, okay. And You have someone there that can check you who and you're also const- knows procedure. Yeah. And that's why 232, United Airlines 232, the, the very first one we did, was by far and away the best example of perfect crew resource management. Now, perfect, but it, as good as it could be. did a very, in a very really, good job. In a really horrible situation, they kept sanity in the cockpit because the, the captain was immediately like, okay, we're all in this situation together. This is really horrible. What do you guys think we should do? <laughs> you know, like give me yeah. some here's, options. Here's what I'm doing. Am I right? Am I wrong? What do you guys think we should do? What What's the better option here? And you know, you know, it's not just having, you know, then as long as you've got that that kind of mentality in the cockpit, also you're you're not keeping the the first officer and the flight engineer from just saying, oh yeah, I think you're doing the right thing. Whatever they you also, say. They also might have an opinion that's really like, oh well. This might help us out. Let me do this. Okay. Well, well those and, kinds of things. And they, you know, that that's extremely important. And you're only strongest as like your weakest link. 
Yep. Right. So if you trust the the lowest person on your team in like job tiers with your life, then I think you're pretty good to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say something else, but I'll remember it. Well, going back to the fact that I worked with Jen for a really long time, as in four months, not a long time. <laughs> really long <laughs> It felt like a long time because the second she walked in, she pointed something out that had been bothering me for six years of my life. And nobody else has seen it except for her because nobody else pays attention to those things. So Jen possess- possesses the leadership skill that I really value where she would make a decision. And if I basically backtalked her, I said, we shouldn't do this. She'd be like, yeah, okay, let me listen to what you have to say, which is really, it's not as rare it used to be, as it used to be, but I've had supervisors where that's not the case. And it is an am- amazing thing for a leader to have. And it makes it so much easier to follow that individual. Thank you. And that actually reminded me what I was going to say. Sweet. I'm tearing up. Um, uh, Now I forgot again. (laughs) Oh, it must be important. It's like right on the tip of my tongue. Um, uh, I'll remember. Keep going. Okay. What's I mean? Continue. Is there anything else you need to talk about? There is. I mean, I've got I've got more changes. This didn't just lead the crew resource management. Go for it. <laughs> no, that was it was a big <laughs> factor. That was the biggest thing I that... remembered. Okay. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> it's so like if if you have a leader or let's say in this case a captain who's who's has such a big ego, who's like the face of your company and you're their second in command and you're like, "Hey, I don't really think we should take off right now." And they're like, "Yeah, I think we're going to take off." And you continuously like put your neck out but never get like a go, you know, and you yeah. always get reprimanded every time you try something and you try to speak out. Right. Then you're not going to speak out. Exactly. That happened exactly in other crashes happened. we've talked about too. Oh yeah, absolutely. The one that's uh, two weeks ago from when this is posted, that that's what yeah, happened. That's exactly. So right. it's an episode that Jen has not listened to yet because it no. hasn't come out when we record this, but it is out. It comes now. out this week. It is episode twenty-two. Two days from comes now. Comes out two days from now. Yes. Okay, I'll pull it up. Yeah, that's just glaring at that's me. That's exactly what this talk, exactly what you're saying is exactly what happened yeah. on that flight. The first officer didn't speak out and they ended up being in a bad situation. And when that happens, you when you become a captain, it should be you have already been a first officer. You know have, what it's like. You know what it's like. You have to have a certain amount of hours. You have so empathy. Reprimanding other first officers is not the best idea when you've the, also been a well, first officer one, before. The one thing that a lot of people seem to forget too is that the the first officers, okay, they're in the they're in the right seat when they're in the airline when they're in the the, the cockpit of that, but they're not always a first officer. When they were learning to fly, they were pilot in command. They learned how to fly an airplane as the pilot in command, the captain. Also, they do know how to fly the airplanes. They have to know that before they're able to fly with the airlines. Something I'm realizing we never said in this. When this first officer on the KLM flight was working on getting his license to be a first officer, his instructor was Jakob Van Zanten. Really? Yep. So that imp- that literally proves my point of he was just intimidated. Absolutely. Yep. That's and, why he's the oh, one that spoke sure. the least. Well, yeah. yeah. He's the one that spoke the least out of everybody. He's like, the I'm not going to do this. The flight engineer hadn't had very many experiences with the, the captain because he doesn't he wasn't learning to fly an actual airplane. He was doing a flight engineer job, which is a little different. And because of that, he really hadn't dealt with this guy very often. So he was the one who was willing to speak up a little bit, and he knew what was going on. But the first officer knew, because he had literally gotten his license from this individual. And he could have lost his job for the entire company if he made this guy mad. Yep. Yep. Well, and he could have lost his license if he went along with him, too. I mean... Now he he lost his life. 
And exactly. yeah, and now he's dead. So <laughs> and people died. And people died. And people died. <laughs> We're bringing it back. It's full uh, circle. <laughs> so are there concluding thoughts? Is there something good that came of it other than okay. like really good crew resource management? So there's other changes that happened, and a lot more of these have to deal with Tenerife specifically. As in, if the fog's well, there, they shut down. <laughs> well, for one, Actually, yeah. They, they so got they, ground radar to begin oh with. Oh my goodness. They did get ground radar. Their minimums decreased, so they were able to, to operate in the lower minimums. But they do have stricter standards on the weather changing at Tenerife now, at that airport specifically. That said, one year later, another airport opened in Tenerife. That is now the bigger airport on the island of Tenerife. At yeah. the time, that was the only one. What is the name of Tenerife now? It is Tenerife North. Yeah. So when I Googled... Northern Tenerife Airport or something like that. To look at, like, the location. Like I told you not to. Mm -hmm. No, I Googled it last week sitting here when you guys finally told me the name. I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I have to map this in my head. Yep. Because I'm trying to get really good at you. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's two. And the smaller one is the one we're talking about. So this one is now the smaller one. The other one, when it opened, became the bigger airport. It's at a lower altitude. It's not in the mountainous area. It's on the edge of the island, and it's on the south side of the island. It doesn't get the weather problems that Los Rodeos does. And it has more than one runway, I would hope. Nope. So it's a better location? It has one both, have one, both have one runway. And one taxiway? Yep. Both so, are exactly the same layout. Also, they talked about in one of the documentaries that Tenerife, as it was at the time, and still is, is at 2,000 feet, which is where cloud cover occurs, is at 2,000 feet. So it wasn't just fog that they were experiencing. It was literally the clouds clouds would just blow over the island and they would cover the airport. It's just in the wrong spot of the island. Yep. Yes. Exactly. And it still exists, by the way. Los Rodeos is still there. And it's still a commercial airport. However, it handles mostly small traffic. The other one, the Tenerife South Airport or whatever it is, something like that, is is the busier airport, and it's now the one that'll handle heavy jet aircraft if, if uh, needed. If it were to be that it needed to. This could be completely off topic, but since it is an island, potentially if somebody jumped the runway, could they just crash into the ocean? No. No. Nope. It's not It's a pretty the, big island. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. It's in the middle of the north part of the island. Yep. Oh, okay. It's it's pretty decent-sized island. It is, and it's yes. pretty inland. Oh, I see it now. Okay. Pretty inland and pretty up there. Uh, I think it's the biggest island in the... It's at least... Canary in the Canaries, Islands. yes. It's at least 200 kilometers. So you can it's almost s- the biggest. I think Gran... Las Palmas was. Uh, yeah, I see it. I think Las Palmas, which is on Gran Canaria, is it's the right next bigger, to, yeah. bigger island, actually. But huh. So, other changes. I bet they got the center lighting fixed. Well, center lighting, yes, of course. Um, I saw a mistake in the air disasters. Oh, yeah. In the air disasters, they do have center lighting and don't talk about how it's not operating. Yep. I noticed right away. Originally, in the actual accident, it was not operating correctly. Right. So, who knows if that would have changed anything? So, obviously, a big thing that also changed from this is they they updated the language standards for air traffic control and radio communications in aviation. Yep. So standard so language standardization came with a lot of things. That meant that okay, for example, saying the word okay or a phrase okay is not an acceptable acknowledgement in air traffic control and radio communications and aviation anymore. Which is what air traffic control had said when KLM said, we are at takeoff. He then said, okay, and then the rest of the message wasn't heard, which meant to him, oh, we're okay, let's go. Okay. Also, Roger is not an acceptable form of acknowledgement in aviation. Well, so contrary be to name. the Right, contra- well, contrary to the, the, <laughs> the uh, movie Airplane, that goes back a little ways, if any... If any for anybody who's seen it, Roger, Roger, what's your Victor, Victor? Okay. 
Shirley, off that little bit. Shirley, you can't be serious. Don't call me Shirley. I am serious. And don't, don't call, call me Shirley. Shirley. Yep. So, in any case, so Roger's not an acceptable acknowledgement either, because basically they're saying, by saying okay or Roger, if if somebody, if, a, if air traffic control gives you a command, they tell you you're cleared for takeoff, saying Roger or okay, that doesn't actually tell them they un- that you understood what you said, what they said. That just tells them that you heard them. Understanding is a different thing. So what they changed in aviation was going from this basic acknowledgement to having to repeat back the instructions given to you. Repeating back those instructions is important because then it gives you, it gives the, the air traffic control the confidence that you have, you actually understood what they told you. Well, and they kind of did that with the KLM flight. They did when they did the clearance, which, by the way, was changed to a departure clearance, and I'll get into that in a minute, but that, they do, they did when it comes to the clearance. However, they were really unclear about a lot of other things when yep. when they're saying, you know, take the third exit, you know, he, he would repeat back a couple times, but several times he would just say Roger, basically, to get him out of his hair. That doesn't mean they understand. And psychologically... You hear one thing, but it's not until you say it that you kind of have more comprehension of what's happening. So the clearances, the air traffic control clearances, that changed for sure. So uh, this was a really hairy situation they put the KLM in, to be fair. And that is that they gave them their, what is now known as the departure clearance, while they were sitting on the runway, and they called it their, their ATC clearance. That's really unclear in reality. Contrary to its name. What a departure clearance actually is, is just the instructions you will get for the route after you take off. What you should expect for altitude, speed, direction, waypoints, all those things immediately after takeoff and en route to your destination. And what the bigger changes that came from that are now when, if there is, in an absolute worst case scenario, an airplane sitting on the runway getting its clearance, its departure clearance that it has to be preceded by the words, hold position. Interesting. Because then that means you have to hold in what you're doing. You cannot take off yet. Hold everything? Yep, don't don't move. Don't do anything. Because that's important because he kept going even though he was still waiting. Exactly. Well, exactly. And that's why it's now preceded by hold position. That means do not move. I like that. Don't do anything. <laughs> Listen to the that. clearance and repeat it back to me, and then I'll give you takeoff clearance. I'm going to say that in my normal life now. Hold position? Well, yeah. Hold yes. position. Troy's going to hate you for that. <laughs> Hold position. No, I'll say it to like, let's say I'm on a date. <laughs> and he like opens the door. Hold position. Right. <laughs> Steadfast, good sir. So that's the worst case scenario. What's the best case scenario? Well, the other things they changed made this a lot more efficient and a lot better. You know, best case scenario now, and it happens very often at most busy airports, is departure clearances are given on a separate radio frequency. Devoted to departure clearances. Interesting. That's a great idea. Ooh. If it's a po- if it's possible, if they have a, a a radio controller who's devoted to that, and they have the extra frequency, then they will they will tell them go to departure clearance departure frequency for clearance. And so we, I kind of do that uh, in my job to myself. Mm-hmm. For example, like if I get a call, I make sure that we hit maybe, and then after we leave the call, we hit accept. So right. we can time it out. And like it, if you have to switch halfway through, you're refocused. Right. So like you're, you're not... refocusing on, oh, we're going to take off now. Yeah. Let's switch and let's get ready. It's like the countdown, you know? Exactly. So that's basically what they did. And in doing that, I mean, now this isn't commonplace at all airports. A lot of them, they still have to do it on 
a frequency they are, they currently have, like the ground frequency, for example. Yeah, but, but they won't typically do it on a tower frequency, for one. And two, they'll do it on a ground frequency if they have the the ability. Three, the other different, the other thing they change is that typically departure clearances are given before they ever taxi. Oh, so it's all clear even before they get there. Exactly. So before they would ever get to the runway, usually departure clearances are given before then. Usually they'll even avoid letting the airplanes taxi. It's it's not saying that they can't. You know, they, they can. But to be honest, at a lot of airports, and, and seeing this at the airport where I work, I understand why that is actually way smarter and a, a way more efficient way of doing things because waiting to do it and, you know, be, until, like, don't taxi until you've gotten your clearances because also they may not have a slot for you ready. They may not have, you know, your your yeah. route and clearance ready yet, in which case you taxi, then you're sitting in front of the runway and there's eight other airplanes behind you waiting to take off while you're still waiting for your clearance. For one, and then two, that give, that gives you an opportunity to have appropriate distancing to avoid wake turbulence. Exactly. Explain that for me, Christy. So, wake turbulence. Miranda. I'm sorry. Go I, on. I, I would enjoy it if you could. <laughs> if you've um, listened to our American Airlines 587, um, we talk a little bit about wake turbulence. So, wake turbulence happens when uh, there's vortices coming off the wings uh, of aircraft when they take when they go through the air period. That's just how wings it's work. It's like like a spin of air because yes. you're pushing Off it of into the a wing certain, tips. Yeah. Yeah. Horizontal They're horizontal tornadoes. Horizontal yeah, tornadoes yeah. that come from the wings. And so if you're too close to the plane in front of you, especially if the plane is bigger than you, um, it can bring you down. It can. And it has before on numerous occasions. We haven't covered one where it's brought one down yet. There's but, one where I really want to. But uh, there's okay. a video game I play where that happens. Yes. <laughs> now so, I know what it is. Yeah, and um, you might see it if you ever try to look at look it up sometime. They'll like flip over. Yeah, yeah, because they're hitting that wake turbulence. So, basically, the point of missing wake turbulence is so you don't encounter anything like that to happen, or that you don't encounter any unnecessary turbulence and on your climb out. And so, air traffic control will put sufficient distancing between you and the last plane to take off, so that you specifically do not encounter that. And by not giving you clearance to depart until you are taxiing, you then have to taxi and take off instead of everyone just taking off right in a row. Right. So it gives you that taxi time plus takeoff time between you and the last flight. So you're worried about the plane that's wake in front of you. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Not behind you because you can't really feel yeah. anything behind you. But if, let's say, a 747 takes off and then an Airbus... A319 takes off. An A319 is significantly smaller than an A747. So, and I mean, depending on how close they are, you might just feel some turbulence. But that's technically unnecessary as long as you're far enough back from the plane in front of you to not feel that kind of turbulence. Right. So... Uh, Love it. Yeah. I also like that we were on the same brain frequency. We've done that twice now? That does happen sometimes. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> That's just what I say whenever they do that. I don't actually mean it. Not sorry. So, in any case, so another communication thing that changed. The word takeoff is only used explicitly when giving or acknowledging takeoff clearances. Yeah, when you actually have to take off. So, yeah, literally, the now if the only time the word would ever be used is cleared for takeoff runway whatever and then an an acknowledgement would be like so and so cleared for takeoff runway whatever whatever that's the only time you'd ever say takeoff 
It is not used yep. in an ATC clearance, whatever you want to call it, a departure clearance. It's not used any other time, ever. So what you're saying is consent is key? Exactly. Basically, yes. And then, obviously, the, the bigger changes there at Tenerife, ground radar was installed. Yes, so you can see what's going on. Despite the fog? Yep. Because the ATC had no idea where they were and had no idea they'd even crashed. Yep. I'm kind of surprised they didn't have... I mean, they didn't let another anyone taxi, taxi down the runway because they hadn't had any communication between the two flights right. after that happened. Right. Uh, but I'm kind of surprised they didn't just send another airplane down the runway, to be yeah. perfectly honest with you. But I guess they just didn't want to. I mean... Well, they like I said, they hadn't heard anything from either of the two flights. For one, and two, the, the two airplanes technically took up every bit of space they had, so they really couldn't send another airplane down the runway yet. And... Uh, Technically, the Pan Am hadn't. They, I mean, the KLM didn't even have clearance to take off yet. Right. That's, so there's a whole set of complications there that, that led to why that didn't happen. Yes. So, the aftermath. What happened after this incident? This is this is this is outside of the report. What else happened? Well, one of the NTSB investiga- investigators retired. He's like, <laughs> screw this. After the completion of the report, never again for this accident because it was so taxing on him. Uh, he said it had a profound effect on his life, and the, his mental state really took a dive, and he went on medications and stuff, and he said it was it was really rough after this, after this seeing, accident. After seeing all those coffins, I don't think I could function for a while. It would be really rough. And the rough. fact that they're in real life, right next to you. Seeing it. They had to see bodies. Yeah. They, yes, they did. It reminds me of looking at the old recolorized photos from that World War II show mm-hmm. and just seeing like the piles of just bodies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what that coffin photo reminded me of. Yep. It's just devastating. So the airport was closed for three days following the accident. Of course, because, to... you know, the aircraft was still, the aircrafts were still on the runways. Right. <laughs> they so, couldn't do anything. Right. So they were closed for three days to all fixed wing traffic. Which fixed wing means anything, basically not a helicopter or an airship, so anything that can take off vertically. That being said, that's why there's pictures like the day after helicopter. with a helicopter that's getting the pictures ones of the wreckage because drones didn't look exist. A little, right. Um, well, they, they did, but the ones that I the showed same. them, Area 51. Uh, they're a little <laughs> fuzzy. Those were the ones that were taken by the helicopter. Yes. So like the sepia-toned one. Yes. Yep. So, however, three days afterward, there was a plane that landed there eventually. And it was the first plane to land after that was a U.S. Air Force C-130. Can you imagine being that pilot? Oh, rough. Um, and that C-130 arrived before the investigators did, by the way, which landed on the they landed on the main taxiway at the airport. They couldn't even land on the runway the because run- there was yeah. still wreckage. Um, what did they do with all the planes on the taxiway? They were stuck there. So how did he land on the taxiway? They moved them. I mean, you think there's 747s. The 747s, the 747s were out, out of the, the way. way, yeah. So they just moved everyone else to where the 747s were. And they probably were. were able to use part of the runway. Eventually, they just parked some of them on the runway. Yeah. Anyways, they managed to get the, the taxiway clear enough. They landed a C-130, which doesn't need a huge amount of distance to land anyways. And they landed there on March 30th. They were carrying soldiers and medical personnel. They were the ones that completed the triage of all the surviving passengers, and they ferried all of the surviving passengers over to Las Palmas, where they were then transferred to U.S. Air Force bases in the U.S. for further treatment of injuries, since they were all from Pan Am. Yeah, they were all from America. So they were all, yep, all from America, all from Pan the Am. United States. The Pan Am flight. So they, they sent them all to Air Force bases in the United States afterwards. 81 or 61? 61. 61. 61, okay. A small aircraft charter service was approved after that, like the day after that. 
but the, but large jet aircraft were still not allowed to operate. The airport fully reopened on April 3rd, which is actually surprisingly soon after the it accident. Because this yeah, happened on the 27th. Yeah, this was only six days later. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Six or seven? Well, I mean, there's not uh, a lot of, like, wild areas around it. It's pretty flat and le- no trees. So. Yeah, so... Easy um, to clean up, I guess? Right. Well, there were a lot... I mean, they had to get the entirety of both aircraft out of there, though. Right. And then, like, the engines the and, and resurface. Yeah. Right. So, on, so it opened on April 3rd after the Spanish soldiers had helped to clear the wreckage and after engineers had come in to assist in repairing the damaged runway. Exactly. Which cost a lot of money, by the way. Oh, yeah. And there were memorials that were set up in all of the affected countries, so in the Netherlands and in Spain mainland and in, and at Tenerife, as well as in the U.S. and California. Yeah, so, Californians uh, who are our second biggest listeners in the United States, you can go see the Tenerife Memorial in California. In Westminster. Westminster, California. That's kind of funny because we have a Westminster That's ironic. in Colorado. Yeah, yeah isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's ironic. There's also a winter park in Florida. So. Yeah, there is. Anyway. So anyway. you can go see the Tenerife Memorial, because a lot of people were from Los Angeles. Yep. So. I do believe that families got compensated. They did, and it was an enormous amount of money. It's it was, almost, yes. it's it was almost like delaying the crew and putting them in a hotel. Yeah. Would have been, been less cheaper. money. Yeah, that $40,000. Well, how about the $2 billion in today's money that they paid? It was actually closer to like $3 billion in today's so money. So it was $2 billion at the time that Crash of the Century came out. Right. It's more like $3 billion now worth of money that they paid out to the families and families the people and the survivors and the and people affected and man it is that is insane that is a huge amount of money it was an insane crash so to be fair yeah i mean this was this is absolutely unbelievably huge the only time we'll ever cover anything even remotely this big will be a single aircraft and that won't be for a little while but yeah this one was really big well and eventually we'll do 9-11 but that's going to be a separate thing altogether that'll be yeah a whole different thing we may or may not do that with another podcast tbd to be determined okay well that i'm gonna call it the tenerife disaster because it has two air crashes that's how you look it up that was the tenerife disaster uh make sure that you check us out on patreon patreon we do want to dedicate this episode to the 583 who lost their lives yep. and their families this two-part series is coming out surrounding the anniversary um i think this is the please hold this comes out on the 20 the 31st and the one before this comes out on the 24th so it straddles the yeah so this is the 43rd anniversary of this disaster so again we just we want to say um, we're sorry to any of the families who lost anybody. Uh, we're sorry for anyone. There was one person who survived the KLM because she got off the plane. Uh, so we're sorry of any traumatic experience you experienced. If you're even listening to this, um, I don't know Those how old she survived. is. Those who yeah, survived. Yes, if they're survived. still alive. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's a horrible, horrible thing to have happened. So. And just know that there are so many things in place now that, this could never happen again. This could never Ever. happen again. This would not, especially in countries like um, the United States and France and Spain. Well, Spain and they you know. would have shut down if the fog would have been there 
in today's time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There are so many things that would have yeah. happened prior to anything like this happening. So before you, any of you out there who may be a little squeamish about flying, be like, oh, my gosh, what if we collide? You won't collide with another plane unless there's like we were talking about earlier, like tug issues like on the oh. runway. Oh, there's like, like or severe breakdown of other. communication. There are still really, really, really strange things that happen in aviation. But like, nothing. There's, there's this... no possible way you can account for everything, but nothing this big could ever happen again. No, not and in this way. Especially in the United States, we don't fly 747s commercially here anymore. Um, we do for well domestically uh, for passenger flight. So you can't fly on a 747 um, on a in the United States domestically anymore. We do get um, like British Airways and Lufthansa and stuff. They do come in and they are 747s and cargo and cargo. But uh, we don't fly them like I said domestically here uh, with passengers on the plane anymore. Even if we did, they're very safe. So. Yep. Yes, yeah. and we have things in place that this would not happen. I did want to say a shout out to my mom and my dad because I'm famous now. And they're gonna yeah. listen to your podcast. <laughs> they're gonna listen to your podcast. Yeah. I'm gonna send them Wait, don't you mean they're gonna watch our podcast? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. They were like, "Where do I watch it?" And I was like, "Well, <laughs> you see, I'll do a reenactment." <laughs> but um, specifically, I did want to mention that when I told my mom what we were covering, she's like, "Oh my gosh, how terrible!" And I was like, "The point of this podcast is to alleviate your fears and your worries." Right. This like, would not happen again. This would not happen, and and that's what I like about this podcast is is it does tell you the truth. But in a way that makes you want to actually travel. So, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. And maybe develop a little bit of an obsession with aviation. That like happens. Has become so contagious. That has that does happen. Well, now I actually pay attention to things like, oh, that's the type of plane I'm in today. Yeah. Whereas before, it's like I'm not like as deep as y'all are, but sure, I'm like ten percent, maybe yeah. fifteen. My mom calls me a nerd. We are. We we all have our nerd stuff. She's like, you've become a plain nerd. I was like, Fight get me. it, get it, get it. But I think aviation safety is. <laughs> yeah, you punned yourself, girl. She did. I think aviation safety is a, an unbelievably important thing, and I think we do a really good job of it these days. And I think that you know that's because there is no no life in vain in aviation. They are always something to learn from. Yep that that is a really big perspective. I didn't think about that. Like if somebody's loses a life mm -hmm. it's gonna be investigated it's, it's gonna a plane crash and it it's is. gonna save more lives yeah it, is. it will not be in vain no yep, exactly even though sometimes it it shouldn't have happened to begin with like here correct this shouldn't have happened but it did and now we have things like crew resource management and it definitely had a good and, butterfly effect yeah yes so and piggybacking off of aviation safety not to go on a tangent or anything i already done that a few times but Just okay a couple times. old man nick but I do, I do, yeah. But I do, I do hope everybody is uh, safe and healthy and yes. able to listen to our podcast and enjoy it and not. If you're uh, bored. If you're bored, because I'm sure you are. Please don't panic over the coronavirus. But well, we've already take done your quite a bit about the coronavirus. Take already, your precautions, but... absolutely. Take your precautions. Don't Wash spread this hands. thing. Wash your hands. Stay home if you're sick. But don't. Please. Don't be irrational. Don't be irrational. Don't get on a plane. Yeah. Please. This Don't is go the to time another state Please when it's legitimate leave. to cancel. Please leave some toilet paper for the rest of us. Please. <laughs> I actually have none, and my grandma gave me two rolls today. Do you need toilet right. paper? We have toilet paper. No, she just gave me two rolls. Okay, then okay. she's good. And then my mom bought ours. me a whole case. <laughs> no, you keep it. We have four I'll people I'll just start in this house. using the cat box. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's that. <laughs>
and uh, that was the Tenerife disaster. Uh, like I said, check us out on Patreon. If you ever need more stuff and you're bored, go check out Patreon. There's lots of stuff up there. You can get extra stuff for uh, just as small as $5 a month. There's so much stuff up there now. Yeah. and We're productive. Yeah. What is pa- Patreon.com slash Hardlandings Podcast. Hey. I think. Hold on. Called out. Don't. Stand by. Slash. By standing. Thank you. <laughs> Passers by. Patreon.com slash hardlandingspodcast. If you need a link, there's a link on our website at hardlandingspodcast.com. There's also more information about what's included with each of the tiers. And uh, there's resources and things for my Miranda sods. So all of that stuff is up there. Yeah. And if you have any questions or any recommendations. Or feedback. Keep, or feedback. Merch ideas. Case, Please Merch let ideas. us know. Yes. You want a neck pillow? I'll make you a neck pillow. <laughs> Dude, we'll wait. Put, press your wait. baby to the floor on the wait. neck pillow. I don't know. That's like, that's like the per. Wait. That was a joke, but that's like perfect. TM, TM. TM, 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 TM. <laughs> Pat oh, pending. I've been thinking about it. All right. Ready? All right. We, we need a post-episode now. Ready? Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.